we come this Lord's Day to talk about the subject of our offerings to God. As we discussed last Lord's Day, God comforts us by His oath that He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. No perversion is more widespread and destructive than that of the Roman Catholic false religion. They appoint priests other than Christ who sacrifice the Mass which blasphemes the Lord Jesus' death. The Romanists falsely claim that their so-called priests transform the bread and the wine into Christ's body and blood and that their sacrifice of the Mass continues the work of our redemption to propitiate God for our crimes and to cleanse us of our sins. Because the Mass claims to repeat those things that Christ has already finished, the Mass denies the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. As Hebrews put it, where there is forgiveness of sin, there is no more offering for sin. Rome's sacrifice in the Mass denies the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. It teaches that men are justified by becoming righteous in themselves by keeping the law. Thus, when men sin, they lose their righteousness and justification, and it must be restored by the Mass, being repeatedly represented to God by their so-called priests to take away their sins again and again and again. Under that system, there can be no peace with God, and believers in Christ can end up in hell in the end because the Romanists deny that Christ's sacrifice actually justifies and redeems men with any finality. But the Bible nowhere teaches a concept of a liturgical priesthood in the church. Nowhere is a priest appointed to offer sacrifices for sin other than Christ. Apostles, prophets, pastors, elders, none are ever authorized to represent Christ's body and blood before God for the forgiveness of sin. Christ alone has already presented His body and blood unto God and taken away our sins forever. That truth, once understood, destroys the evil grip of false religion from off the people, returning their loyalty to Christ where it belongs, and not putting any loyalty at all in the usurping false priests imposed by wicked prelates and false popes. The Roman Catholic Catechism claims that Christ died to institute their blasphemous priesthood so that we might have priests with us now that Christ has died. But Hebrews declares that Christ is still our high priest forever and serves even now in glory on our behalf. They claim that Christ meant to leave us a visible sacrifice in the Mass because the nature of man requires it. What utter rubbish. They claim the Mass is a propitiatory sacrifice for our sin when Christ has already taken away our sin by His sacrifice once for all. Many Roman Catholic clerics and teachers have made blasphemous statements about their so-called priests. The Reverend James O'Brien in his book, Faith of Millions, claims that their so-called priests, quote, bring Christ down from His throne and place Him upon our altar to be offered up again for the sins of man. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows His head in humble obedience to the priest's command, unquote. O'Brien concludes that their priests are another Christ 
And this is not his criticism, this is his praise. But Alphonsus Liguri is far worse, named a saint and doctor of the church by Pope Gregory the Sixteenth in 1839. His books are veritable cesspools of blasphemous claims about their so-called priests. He claims, for example, that Christ didn't have to die to save mankind, but rather did so in order to institute their priesthood. Liguri goes on and on about the power of the priests over the body of Jesus Christ, who places Himself in their hands and at their disposal. Christ, quote, has obliged Himself to obey, unquote, the priests. They, quote, move Him about as they please. They shut Him up in the tabernacle, close quote. He claims that God Himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of His priests. The priests are called, quote, the parents of Jesus Christ, unquote. And thus they may be called, quote, the creator of their creator, unquote. When the priest consecrates the bread, quote, he creates, as it were, Jesus in the sacrament and produces him as a victim to be offered to the eternal Father, unquote. Liguri claims that priests, quote, hold Christ's place on earth, unquote. A priest, he says, performs the office of the Holy Ghost in the sanctification of souls. The Romanists actually claim their so-called priests share with Christ the priesthood of Melchizedek. Even though, as Hebrews tells us, Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost since He ever lives to make intercession for us. All this is why the Pope is so reluctant to defrock any of their priests for gross wickedness against little children. They have supposedly given their priests the very power of salvation itself. To defrock a priest would undermine the very means by which that apostate religion controls salvation instead of Christ and dispenses its poisonous false works gospel to poor lost souls seeking peace with God. Instead of salvation, the Romanists enslaved their people to an endless cycle of enmity with God and ritual sacrifices of the Mass to take away their sin. There can be no permanent peace with God under such demonic doctrines. But Hebrews makes it clear, any sacrifice that must be repeated does not take away our sin. Moreover, a repeated sacrifice that does not purge the sinner forever serves only as a constant reminder of our unforgiven sin. But at our Lord's table, we are not reminding God or ourselves of our sin. For God has forgiven our sin for all time for those who trust in Christ's one-time sacrifice. Nor are we offering a sacrifice of the Mass, a representation of Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of our sin. Instead, we're celebrating, giving thanks, and worshiping Him whose sacrifice at once and for all time has saved us according to the Scriptures. No wonder we are greatly comforted by God's solemn oath to Christ to make Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let nobody seek to shoehorn themselves or their so-called sacrifice into the exalted place of our Lord Jesus. Now only Christ could sacrifice Himself an offering for sin, and He has forever cleansed us by that blood on Calvary's tree. 
And so that raises the question, are there any offerings left to be given to God? And the answer throughout the Scripture is yes, there are offerings to be given to God. Manoah and his wife, you remember they were the parents of Samson, met with the angel of the Lord and they offered to God an offering. Afterwards, Manoah feared for his life, but his wife reasoned that God would not have accepted their offering had he intended wrath against them. So too, the Lord's people should know that God is pleased to receive our offerings to Him, not for sin, but because He is kindly disposed to His people for Jesus' sake. The Scripture is full of examples to show that when God is angry, He rejects man's offering. He rejected Cain's offering, for it was not what he required. He rejected the animal sacrifice of anything blemished or imperfect in the Old Testament. He rejected the offerings of Israel when the nation was covered in innocent blood, injustice and oppression of the poor and weak. See Isaiah chapter 1 for a discussion of that matter. And Hebrews tells us he rejects all the animal sacrifices in the end because they could never take away sin. That's why he offered up his son as the one sacrifice who could take away sin. The Lord declared that one day He will cleanse and make righteous His people, and then their offerings will be pleasing to Him. All those who have been declared righteous by faith in the obedience and blood of the Savior are accepted by God. His wrath is turned away from the saints, and therefore He is pleased to accept our offerings. The offerings that God accepts from His people are not sin offerings, nor do we offer them up as an appeasement or an atonement for our sin. For Christ's offering is done away with all such things. Rather, God declares His satisfaction with offerings of praise, thanksgiving, obedience, worship, charity, good works towards the brethren and towards others at large. Over and over the Scriptures declare that such spiritual offerings are well-pleasing and acceptable to God. So it is those sort of offerings that we are going to be discussing this morning. Perhaps next Lord's Day we will discuss the question of whether the Lord's people are priests of any sort, given that the Lord Jesus is our high priest and only He can offer up the offering for sin. There is a frustration that we all ought to feel that we can never have a gift to match what Jesus did for us. And that is true. His gift to us with the fathers is too majestic, isn't it? Too glorious, too valuable for us to match in an eternity of trying. And yet the Scriptures teach that Jesus does desire certain things from His people and certain gifts are well-pleasing to Him. And in that, and that alone, we take all of our comfort. For example, Christ taught His disciples that the smallest gift given in sacrifice and love is received by God. You remember in Mark's Gospel, the 12th chapter, where Jesus sat over against the treasury at the temple and behold, how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites 
which maketh farthing. And he called unto him his disciples and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance. But she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all of her living. So there was a teaching of Christ by this example of this poor widow that she gave more to God than the rich and powerful who gave far larger amounts of money into the temple coffers. So it is not the size of the gift or the importance of the gift. It is the attitude of the heart towards God to make an offering to honor and to worship Him that counts and not to be seen and praised by other men. How can we forget Christ's approval of Mary's anointing Him just before He died with the costly ointment from the alabaster box? You remember that story well. One of the reasons we remember it is because Christ promised we would remember it. Remember He gathered in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. This was a party that they put on to celebrate and to thank the Lord for raising Lazarus from the dead. We read in other Gospels. As He sat at meat, there came a woman who was identified as Mary having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, and very precious, and she broke the box and poured it on His head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Now we know from other texts that the motivation of this was most likely that Mary was giving thanks to her Lord for raising her dear brother Lazarus from the grave. And yet these people questioned and speculated and picked, tried to pick apart her sacrifice of praise. For ye have the poor with you always, Jesus continued, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. So here is a sacrificial act of worship by Mary. And the Lord Jesus heartily approves of it, no matter what the critics and the skeptics might have said. We know one of the main skeptics was Judas Iscariot, who didn't care for the poor, but he, he was the treasurer and he liked to steal from the bag. And this money had been diverted from his cash flow operation, you see. And this was the thing that drove him to betray the Lord Jesus. So this offering by Mary of Bethany was used by God to move forward His purposes of sending His Son to the cross. And Judas did it out of an understanding that there was no hope of the kingdom, that Christ was bound to go to death for what reason Judas probably never would understand. And so he'd better cash in his wasted time and get what he could with 30 pieces of silver, the price of betrayal. But you see that she did what she could and she made a sacrificial offering, a gift of worship and praise to the Lord Jesus. And he took note of it 
and he defended her against her critics and those who would complain about it. Others were critical of her extravagance, but Jesus approved of it and remarked that it was an act of worship and praise that would be preached about forever. In this, Jesus lets us know that nothing is too extravagant to give in worship and thanksgiving to Him for His salvation and everlasting life. Indeed, it is praise to our Redeemer, our Lord Jesus, that is the center of what Christ approves of and accepts from us. When little children sang in the marketplace, the Lord Jesus was honored. When the little children praised Christ when He rode into Jerusalem on the back of the colt and they sang His praises, we remember they cried out, Hosanna to God in the highest. Blessed is He that cometh in the name of the Lord. The religious leaders tried to shut them up because they were identifying the Lord Jesus with Christ the Messiah. Jesus reminded them, didn't He? He reminded them of something important. Matthew 21 at verse 15, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that He did and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were sore displeased and said unto Him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? You see, Jesus told these wicked religious rulers that these little children were fulfilling a prophecy of the Old Testament of praise to the Messiah out of the mouths of weak people, little people, unimportant people, and yet it is in their mouths that God perfected, raised up to public adoration the Lord Jesus, God has perfected praise for His Messiah in these little children. Christ embraced and approved of even little children singing His praises and exalting His name in public. And so too must we all sing the praises of Him who died for us. Exalt the glory of the Lamb and sing His praises. Jesus told us that if we love Him, we will keep His commandments. There's another offering of obedience and worship that we can make to the Lord. That is to obey His commandments. What is His first commandment? That we love one another. That we trust in what Jesus has promised. That we don't depend upon ourselves, but we cry out unto Him for mercy and for salvation and that He will raise us up. In the last day, the writer of Hebrews summarized it up well. We are to offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name, to do good and to share with the needy our sacrifices that are well-pleasing to God. Any works of kindness that we can do for those who need help, any offering of consideration to those who are in need. These are things that if done in Christ's name are well-pleasing to God. He accepts those things from His people who have been redeemed and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Imagine this, the humble words we say, the praises we utter to God, the helping of those in need, 
our thanksgiving to God, all these are well-pleasing to God. And this reminds us, doesn't it, of the text we read this morning when the Lord Jesus comes and sits upon His throne with His angels at the end. And He says He separates the sheep from the goats. And you remember He calls out to them on His right hand, Come ye blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave Me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave Me drink. I was a stranger, and you took Me in. Naked, and you clothed Me. I was sick, and you visited Me. I was in prison, and you came unto Me. Then shall the righteous answer Him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer, and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto Me. Now, a lot of people who believe in works salvation latch on to this text of Scripture and claim that the reason these people are righteous is because they did all these good works unto the Lord's people. That's not what it's teaching at all. It's teaching that these people, because they're righteous, they do these good deeds. They're kind. They're helpful. They're courteous. They're loving. And they do those things not as a cause of their righteousness, but rather as a result of their righteousness. It's a mark of their righteousness that they should therefore proceed to do good deeds to the Lord's people. And notice that the Lord Jesus, He counts them as if they were done to Him. He credits them as if they were done to Him. And not only to His people whom He loves. And this, of course, is because the Lord identifies with His people. We've spoken about that at length in the last 30 or 40 Lord's Days about how the Lord Jesus, as our great high priest, identifies with His brethren whom He was made like, who He came into this world to save to the uttermost. And so it is only reasonable that we being in Christ by faith should be treated as if the things done for us by the believers, by the Lord's loved ones, were done unto Christ Himself. And then we also see Paul in Romans chapter 12 has this to say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So you see, there is an argument that we should present our very whole beings, especially our physical bodies, which are capable of praise, thanksgiving, labors, kindness, worship, good deeds, helps, We're to present that to God as our offering. Look at what it says at verse 10 of Romans 12. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality a collection of ideas or ways in which we surrender our body to God as an offering so that we might show such kindness and diligence and hard work and patience 
and giving honor one to another rather than to ourselves, rejoicing in the promises of God, patient when we suffer tribulation, urgent and continuous in prayer, all of these things, you see, are offerings with which God is well pleased. How glorious that God delights in these things from His people. How marvelous that He accepts our praise as poor and as lowly as it is. But we are really just like children. Children have no resources to give gifts to their family and friends. And therefore, their parents give them money so that the children in turn can buy gifts for their loved ones. We know how that works from the days of our youth. And so too are all of God's people. It is Christ that cleanses our hearts to be eager to give the gifts to Him. And indeed, to do all good things, nothing we have that is good comes from us, but rather from God who has rescued us and saved us. In fact, Hebrews teaches us that it is God who makes us perfect in every good work to do His will. Our obedience and gifts to God and presence to Christ come from His making us perfect to do His will. Hebrews 13 at verse 20. Now the God of grace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will. You see, the blood of the everlasting covenant doesn't just justify us and cleanse us and make us righteous for Jesus' sake because it takes away our sin. No, look at what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It makes us perfect in every good work. The blood of Christ is the power that sanctifies the believer as well as the power that justifies and makes righteous the people. That the blood of the everlasting covenant, that is Christ's blood, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The blood of Christ, of the new covenant, has not only cleansed us of all unrighteousness, it has not only justified us by taking away our sin, for the price that Jesus paid suffering in our place. It also perfects us in every good work. Now, this is a gradual thing. Because you see, the writer of Hebrews is asking that it should be so and promising that it will be so more and more, made perfect in every good work to do His will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. So here is the means by which, you see, the little children are given the money to buy the offerings to give to the Lord is by the blood of Jesus working in us, transforming us, changing us through the power of the Holy Ghost. In Ephesians 2, at verse 8, along the same lines, we read this. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So our salvation is utterly free. 
And our works don't enter into it at all. They don't help it out. They don't justify it in the end. It's not by works of the law at all that we're saved, but by faith in the promise of God in the blood of Jesus Christ. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. See, here Paul is teaching us that while our good works have nothing whatsoever to do with why we are saved, they do have a lot to do with because we are saved. That because we have been saved by grace through faith, and the faith is the gift of God, and the grace is the gift of God, and the sacrifice of Jesus is the gift of God, and our works don't enter into it at all. He who worketh not, but believeth on Him who justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness, Paul says in Romans 4. But because we've been saved by grace through faith without works, nevertheless, we become the workmanship of Christ. I think in modern language we would say the work product of the Lord Jesus. That is that we're created as new people in Christ Jesus under good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This was always the consequence of our salvation that God had determined beforehand. And it's all through the power of Christ working in us. Now He works in us that which is well-pleasing in His sight. He does that work through Jesus Christ. And because of all that, He receives all the glory for whatever works we are able to accomplish for His glory and His purposes. Now in Philippians 2 at verse 12, we read similar language. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure when we realize that any time we are willing and doing something that pleases God, that this is not of ourselves at all, but rather that it is the working out by God in us of His purposes in our salvation. And that's why I submit to you that we should do these things with fear and trembling because the power is so great that lies upon us. Otherwise, we wouldn't do these things that are pleasing to God. We would still be in our sin. We would still be defying God and disobeying God and not loving the Lord's people and stingy and stubborn and refusing to help and refusing to worship and refusing to praise. And so when we find ourselves doing any of those good works, then our response ought to be not look at me. Our response ought to be, Look at the mighty power of God. Now you know a lot of people who are the Pentecostal persuasion are always looking for that, that frisson, that shiver that goes up their spine, the hair standing on the back of their neck when somebody raises the dead or heals the sick or whatever, speaks in tongues or gives a word of knowledge, almost all of which is foolishness. But this is the, this is the shiver you see that the believer should recognize that anything good that's in us that we do 
to the glory of God. It's because of the mighty power of God working in us to will, that is to, de- to desire to do, and to actually carry out the good pleasures of God as an offering and a sacrifice to God. It is God that works in us to want to do, to actually carry out God's good pleasure. It is a part of His gifts to us that He makes us willing and able to give good presents that are acceptable to Him. You see how the Lord gets better presents than any parents or siblings or aunts or uncles or grandparents get from little children. Because the little children have no power to give good gifts, do they? And usually the gifts they give are foolish, (laughs) trivial, and yet the people who love them make own over them, don't they? But here the Lord is working in His people as it were to work good things and to give good gifts back to their God in adoration and worship. The truth is, the Apostle John said, we love Him because He first loved us. In the end, all of our delight and worship and praise to God, which is acceptable and well-pleasing to Him, is overwhelmed, is it not? It's overshadowed by God's love for us. As well it should be. And as well we need to practice, to take knowledge of, to understand, to believe. And we read this morning that passage from Zephaniah 3. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. That is, the promise of punishment for sin. He hath cast out thine enemy, the King of Israel. Even the Lord is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, and to Zion, Let not thine hands be slack. The Lord thy God is in the midst of thee, is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in His love. He will joy over thee with singing. Isn't it an astounding thing to know that the God of all glory and our Lord Jesus Christ in His humanity rejoice over us with singing, rests in His love towards us, because He is mighty to save and because He loves us. And that's why He saved us. And so you see that His love for us overwhelms any pitiful love we might have to Him, doesn't it? Overwhelms it. Overflows it. Nothing we do can ever match the glorious love of God for the Lord's people. It is that love for us that motivated His great gift giving to us in the first place that great gift-giving of His to us in the first place. He gave us the greatest gift in His dear Son and is dying to save us because He loves us so exquisitely, so completely, and so forever. Now, as we partake of the Lord's table, what we're doing today around this table is offering sacrifices of worship and praise and thanksgiving to our God and to the Lamb that was slain to save us. That's what we do at the Lord's table. We do it in remembrance of the Lord. We do it to preach the Lord's death 
the greatest sacrifice, the greatest gift that man has ever known. Our high priest sits in glory, interceding for us, presenting his sacrifice that saved us even now. And God receives our thank offerings and our praise for Jesus' sake. We have been made in some ways the glory of Christ because His glory is His death for us. You remember it says that we become trophies of the grace of God and therefore we become emblems of the glory of God. That in saving poor lost sinners by the sacrifice of the second person of the Godhead incarnate in human flesh, we become made into trophies of grace that display the great glory of God, the great love of God. The angels, you see, receive no such offering. They receive no such gift. But they marvel and they worship at the goodness of God towards lost sinners. And when we are saved and when we honor and praise the Lord, they are astounded and they rejoice and they give glory and praise to the God who has wrought all these things in our hearts. His glory, that is Christ, is His death for us. God is perfecting praise, isn't He, unto Himself in us and doing it right now before our eyes as we gather around this table, as our hearts are warmed in thanksgiving to the Lord, as we sing His praises, as we read His Word. It reminds us of that beautiful hymn that Isaac Watts wrote, Behold the glories of the Lamb amidst the Father's throne. Prepare new honors for His name and songs before unknown. Ye elders, worship at His feet. Ye saints, adore around with vials full of odors sweet and harps of sweetest sound. To Thee, O Lamb, to Thee once slain, be endless blessings paid, salvation, glory, joy remain forever on Thy head. And no matter how great our praise is, and no matter how great our worship is, it is upon the head of the Lord Jesus Christ that salvation and glory and joy will remain forever. And because we are His, those things will remain forever upon us also. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table. I'd like to ask my Father if He'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Well, let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus, the blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin. O God, our Father, we come to You rejoicing and praising Your name for so great a redemption and salvation as You've wrought for us through Your Son, the Lord Jesus, who is Your well-beloved Son. We thank You that You made Him a sacrifice for us on Calvary's tree. That He is the answer to little Isaac's question, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham's answer, Prophetic, my son, God will provide of Himself a lamb for a sacrifice. And so you did. Your very dear son, the second person of the Godhead, incarnate in our humanity, made like His brethren whom He would redeem, 
sent to die in our place on Calvary's tree. And He shed His precious blood there to make an atonement for us, to offer a propitiation for our sin, to appease the wrath, your wrath that we should receive for our crimes. You laid those crimes on Jesus and He treated them and you treated them as if they were His own crimes and He was made guilty in our place and for our sins. And you judged Him there. And He patiently bore that judgment. Took away the wrath that we should have suffered. We were crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, in Christ we live because He rose again from the grave. We thank You for the blood of Jesus and that He has already presented it before the throne of grace and glory. Nobody else is entitled to present it to You. Christ has done so already and He's there interceding for us now. And we thank You that You have been pleased to receive from us gifts of worship and praise and obedience and help and kindness. And we pray that You would increase those more and more. We would submit ourselves to Your will to carry out the things which You would be pleased with. And to always remember that the work of Christ is overall and cannot be touched and cannot be matched by anything we do. And that our works and pleasing to You are not in any way the cause of our salvation, but rather the fruit of it, the consequence of it. We thank You for working in us and we thank You for Your dear Son's blood that this cup demonstrates to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 19 in the black book. Now is a song of grateful praise. To Christ the Lord our voice will raise. With all thy saints will join to tell Christ Jesus hath done all things well. Number 19.